topic is, I guess I could just say, I told you so. The medical industrial complex declares old wives' tales to be true. Yes, sorry, Bob. Not all of them, just a few. And a few very notable ones. Now, you have to put this in context. Of course, context is very important. Uh, every four years, 50% of what doctors know to be true is found to actually be false. Every four years, 50% is found to be false. At the same time, more and more folk healing is found to be true. So don't abandon those healing practices. So tonight, we're going to talk about this whole process and what we're really watching here. What, what's, what's really going on? Okay, so if you have a body of knowledge, 50% of which is found to be false every four years. And at the time it's presented, 50% is false. So time zero, half of it is false. At time four years, 75% of it is false. At time eight years, 85% or 88% is found to be false. And at 12 years, it's over 90%. So the question, of course, always, is if 90-something percent of it is false at 12 years, was it also false at time zero? So what we have with the medical industrial complex, then, is a body of knowledge being obtained from a 100% unreliable source, being presented as the truth, and being exposed at the rate of 50% every four years. So let's switch over to home remedies. With home remedies, we have a body of knowledge presumed to be 100% false, which has found more and more parts of it to be true over time. So which side would you rather be on? Would you be, rather be relying on the body of knowledge found to be less and less reliable every day would you rather be relying on the body of knowledge that's found to be more and more reliable each day? So tonight, we're going to take a look at uh, the medical industrial complex's examination of some pretty, I would say, outrageous uh, old wives' tales or really common folk information that historically had absolutely no, was believed to have absolutely no proof to be even preposterous. These are things I heard as, as far back as when I was uh, really a teenager. I guess I'd say starting at age 12. So let's take a look. Here is one which has been uh, getting debunked over time. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm African-American. What does that mean? It means I have brown skin, basically, more or less. And so... Headline, avoiding sun is as dangerous as smoking. 
right? Avoiding the sun is as dangerous as smoking. So now, when I grew up, the only thing dangerous about the sun was your skin might get darker. And then your social status, which was already pretty low, might get lower. That was it. That was the total uh, ill effect of going in the sun. And since I figured out at a very young age, about the age of three, that my social status really couldn't get any lower, I had no problem with going out in the sun. And a lot. And not even wearing a hat or any type of sun protection at all. And so when I heard of this thing called sunscreen, that was after integration when I, you know, I see these white people, they put things in their nose, and I think, well, what's that for? And they explained to me, well, I have to protect myself from the sun. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And as time went on, people would ask me questions like, well, doctor, what kind of sun protection should I use? And I would say, honestly, either nothing or a wide brim hat. And so now the medical industrial complex says avoiding the sun is dangerous. Well, if avoiding the sun is dangerous, isn't putting on sunscreen, which is a method of avoiding the sun, also dangerous? So let's see what they had to say. Non-smokers who stayed out of the sun had a life expectancy similar to smokers who soaked up the most rays, according to researchers who studied nearly 30,000 Swedish women over 20 years. Wow. This indicates that avoiding the sun is a risk factor for death of a similar magnitude as smoking. So, this of course begs the question, if we're outlawing smoking in public places because smoking is so dangerous, should we also outlaw awnings because awnings protect people who are dining from the sun, keep them from getting sun, and also increase their risk of cancer even more? Something to ponder. So this indicates that avoiding the sun is a risk factor for death. Compared with those with the highest sun exposure, life expectancy for those who avoided the sun dropped 2.1 years. It's not a lot of time. And so when you think, too, if cigarette smoking only takes 2.1 years off your life, not a lot of years when you're looking at 79 or 80 years of life. Okay. And so Pete Linkvist, MD, in Sweden, found that women who seek out the sun are generally at lower risk for heart disease, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and pulmonary diseases than those who avoided sun exposure. One of the strengths of the study was that results were dose-specific. In other words, the more sunshine you had, you were exposed to, the greater your um, benefit. They acknowledge that longer life expectancy for sunbathers seems the opposite of common thinking that sun exposure increases risk for skin cancer. We did find an increased risk of skin cancer. However, the skin cancers that occurred in those exposing themselves to the sun had better prognosis. In other words, if you don't expose yourself to the sun, you can still get skin cancer, but the skin cancer you get will be much more dangerous, deadly, lethal than what you would have gotten had you been exposed to the sun. Even with these findings, he said, women should not overexpose themselves to the sun. 
Of course, according to these findings, there is no such thing as overexposure because increased health benefits were found at each level of increasing exposure. And so this advice, don't overexpose yourself to the sun, is actually contradictory to the research findings. But let's continue. But underexposure may be even more dangerous than people think. Well, of course, what they found was underexposure was more dangerous than overexposure. We know in our population there are three big lifestyle factors that affect health. Smoking, being overweight, and inactivity. Now we know there's a fourth, avoiding sun exposure. So if you're going to put smoking in as something that detracts from health, then you have to put in sun exposure because it seems to have as big an effect as smoking or even more so. So smoking uh, decreases your health, but sun exposure increases it so much that it can actually overshadow the effect of smoking. So Sweden's restrictive guidance against sun exposure over the past 40 years may be ill-advised, the study finds, in a country where the maximum UV index is low for nine months of the year. Using sunscreen is also widely misunderstood. Great. If you're using it to be longer in the sun, you're using it the wrong way, he said. However, if you're stuck on a boat and have to be out, it's probably better to have sunscreen than not to have it. Now get this, it's probably better, which means they have no evidence. They haven't looked at it. They don't know. So we're not even going to acknowledge that as reasonable advice. Women with more pigmentation would be particularly well served to stop avoiding sunshine, he said, adding that many people in India, for instance, follow guidelines like those in Sweden to avoid sun year-round. Hmm. And because melanomas are rare among women with darker skin, benefit goes up in those populations when weighing sun's exposure risk against benefits, which is a totally unintelligible sentence. So what you're saying is because having dark skin means you're not going to get the skin cancers from the sun anyway, then there's an increased benefit, even greater increased benefit, of using the sun or being in the sun if you have dark skin. That was another thing I thought. I said, you know, all my ancestors, certainly my grandparents and great-grandparents, they were in the sun all day long, working in the fields, and no one had any problems. You know, sun exposure might be a problem for somebody, but not for me. So age and smoking habits. So researchers studied exposure as a risk factor for all-cause mortality in 29,518 women with no history of cancer, and they watched them for 20 years. And they were recruited between the ages of 25 and 64. Detailed information was available on their sun exposure habits and potential things that might affect your longevity, like marital status, educational level, smoking, alcohol consumption, and how many children they had. So when smoking was factored in, even smokers at 60 years of age with the most active sun exposure habits had a two-year longer life expectancy during a study period compared with smokers who avoided the sun exposure. And so they say it's difficult to, to distinguish between active sun exposure habits and a healthy lifestyle. They do not have access to the exercise data. So some people are saying who do lay in the sun may actually be getting exercise, and maybe it's really the exercise having the effect. And so here we have thorough debunking of the sun as dangerous. Get all the sun you want. In fact, get a little bit more.
So Bill might say, well, Dr. Daniels, what if I get skin cancer? If you get some skin cancer, just get black salve. It works great. So my husband and I were lying in bed and he says to me, honey, I have, I have this thing on my nose. I have cancer in my nose. I said, really? He said, yes, yes, it's cancer. I said, oh. So pull out the drawer in my nightstand, pull out the black salve, took a little bit of it, put it on his nose and said, there, now you're okay. Put it back in the drawer, close the drawer, that was the end of it. It took only two days and sure enough, he did have cancer. The thing turned white and uh, just fell off his nose, uh, like a, a cancer plug. I said, well, that's the end of that. So that's the way you handle cancer. It is no big deal. How much does black sap cost? $21. Yep. Well, maybe they'll gouge you buy it for $45, but check it out. So the sun is your friend, skin cancer, don't worry about it. Another thing that happened with skin cancer. So I had a client in California. He goes back and forth from California to Hawaii. So he says to me, oh my gosh, Dr. Daniels, my uh, dermatologist says I have skin cancer, I need a Mohs procedure, and he's going to do surgery, he's going to dig all the way down in there, make sure he gets all of it, and then stitch me closed. But, you know, I, I have that cancer on my shoulder, but then I have this cancer on my temple over here, and on my nose, and my temple over there, and one on the back of my head, and one on my chest, and oh my God, what am I going to do? I said, get some black salve and take care of it. And so he went ahead and got the most procedure anyway, because, of course, he had insurance. And uh, it was painful. He had a scar, you know, but it healed. And so for the next cancer, which was a uh, pretty good size, about the size of uh, a dime, he decided he was going to put black stab on it, which he did. And it fell off and the skin healed over without scarring. Can I guarantee you won't have scarring? Of course not. But this is what happened to him. No scarring, whatever. So then he put it on the back of his head where he had a skin cancer. That plug fell out. And so now he's feeling pretty good, cancer-free. And uh, if skin cancer shows up, well, I just put a little sand on it, and that's the end of it. So there's the end of the skin thing. So avoiding the sun is dangerous. Old wives tale, get plenty of sunshine. Sunshine heals you. Turns out, well, they were right. All right, what's the next one? Artificial sweeteners. I was in medical school when this uh, folk tale came out. So, you know, those artificial sweeteners are bad. They are really, really bad. Actually, high schools mentioned that they might be cancerous. And the medical schools mentioned that artificial sweeteners cause you to gain weight. The artificial sweeteners actually destroy your health. Of course, I was eating every other day, 20 pounds underweight. I had no use for artificial sweeteners. And so I would refuse to eat anything with artificial sweeteners because... Well, I needed the calories. And so here we have Medscape, Family Medicine, Medical Industrial Complex themselves. What do they say? Artificial sweeteners, a wolf in sheep's clothing. How scientific can you get? Okay. So here we have a doctor putting his reputation on the line. Hi, I am Dr. David Johnson, Professor of Medicine 
Chief Gastroenterology at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. I recently attended a conference in Israel and wanted to highlight some particularly fascinating information about non-caloric artificial sweeteners. In use for over a century now, there are six commercially available artificial sweeteners in the United States. They are commonly used in a variety of foods, processed sodas, and other products that we routinely see on the shelf and ingest perhaps every day. I want to tell people who are listening that many of these artificial sweeteners are actually used in your supplements, such as B12, such as um, complete meal protein powders. So look for these artificial sweeteners. They are all around you. Whenever you buy a processed product, it's a good chance there's an artificial sweetener in the mix there. So, and he says, artificial sweeteners are frequently recommended to patients with prediabetes, diabetes, and obesity because they are non-caloric and don't have an absorbable sugar. Are they really good for us? The data on glycemic control in patients with diabetes or obesity are mixed. What I want to share with you today is why some of these artificial sweeteners are really not good and may be bad for you. So a fascinating series of experiments. Let's look at a fascinating series of experiments from the Wiseman Institute of Science. They took mice and gave them three artificial sweeteners, saccharin, sucralose, which is Splenda, and aspartame. They compared mice that were fed these sweeteners with mice that had routine chow feeds and glucose or sucrose, which are both absorbable sugars. At the end of the four-week experiment, remember it's only four weeks, there was a profound effect on glycemic control of the mice that were being fed the non-caloric artificial sweeteners. They had significant dysregulation of their glycemic control, which means their blood sugars were out of control. Saccharin was the worse. So they did another experiment using a lower dose of saccharin, which showed the same type of blood sugar control worsening in the mice. Was this effect related to the microbiome? We know that sugars are potentially fermentable. Non-caloric sugars can be presented to the gastrointestinal tract, and the microbiome can take advantage of them. The microbiome can convert them to things that may be fermented and then up-regulate certain pathways by themselves. And they may have a prebiotic effect. So all this gobbledygook means is when you swallow this stuff, it may have an effect on your intestines and on your good and your bad bacteria. And so the ingested substances may actually be toxic due to the metabolic waste products that the bacteria generate and may knock off some other bacteria or may favor some of the bad bacteria, creating what we call intestinal dysbiosis. Now, the findings are relevant in humans as well. So next they tested these findings in humans using a database with nutritional profiling in a large number of patients, ongoing data collection. They looked at associations with glycemic control, that means the ability of the body to control the blood sugar and keep it in a normal range, and ingestion of non-caloric artificial sweeteners. They had a very dynamic way to look at dietary recall with a validated dietary history questionnaire, which means we believe their data were accurate. When they looked at this and corrected for exposure to non-caloric artificial sweeteners, there were increases in the same things that we saw in the mouse model. There were increases in hemoglobin A1C, 
more prediabetes, reduced glucose control, impaired fasting glucose, and increased body weight and waist-to-hip ratios. In other words, the humans were actually getting diabetes from their artificial sweeteners. So there was this central obesity pattern seen in metabolic syndrome. In other words, artificial sweeteners were inducing what has been come to know, be called metabolic syndrome. These changes were all related to the exposure to non-caloric artificial sweeteners. And of course, there's a dose effect. In other words, people who use more of these sweeteners have more pronounced effects. So I took it a step further and looked at seven healthy lean participants and fed them U.S. Food and Drug Administration acceptable daily intake of saccharin. They looked at glycemic effects as a response only to the saccharin ingestion with standardized meals. Lo and behold, four out of the seven, it's more than half, actually developed impaired glucose tolerance. In other words, it's a euphemism for prediabetes. Or I should say it's one of the steps on the way to diabetes. And their glycemic response relative to what they were at baseline was strikingly abnormal. So four out of the seven participants had profound glucose intolerance. They also looked at the response of the microbiome. They found that there were profound changes in these four participants. And so They're saying here then that artificial sweeteners are frequently used around the world to decrease glucose exposure, increase glycemic control, and decrease the tendency for obesity. In fact, what we're seeing is these artificial sweeteners actually have a profound effect on the metabolic consequences related to dysbiosis, despite being calorie-free. In other words, artificial sweeteners do exactly the opposite. And so as we strive to improve these disease states, we actually may be making them worse. To conclude, buyer beware to patients with diabetes or obesities. These artificial sweeteners certainly may be a part, if not the main problem, the main part of the problem. And patients should discuss using these sweeteners with their physician. I don't know if it means the same doctor who recommended the sweeteners or another physician. Physicians who recommend these sweeteners need to take a step back and really reevaluate their recommendations, especially among their patients with diabetes and obesity. In fact, we may be dealing with a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, long story short, you can quibble about the mechanism and how does this happen, but people saying that artificial sweeteners actually cause weight gain, what we're now seeing is, yes, the medical industrial complex has concluded that, yes, artificial sweeteners do cause weight gain. Now, you can say they really have calories, and back in the 80s they were saying, well, artificial sweeteners have invisible calories. There's all kinds of theories. And they keep changing the theories, which is really irrelevant. The point is, the old folklore that artificial sweeteners are bad for you, that they're worse than sugar itself, and you're gonna gain weight from artificial sweeteners even more than you would with the sugar, appears to be true. And another piece of nonsense folklore that has been found to be true. Now it gets worse. It gets much worse.
So. Now, as you know, I grew up in the inner city. And from the time I was just about maybe 12 years old, guys would say to me, you know, guys have to ejaculate. If guys don't ejaculate, it's unhealthy. And so you girls, I guess me being one of them, need to have sex with guys. You need to, it's just your duty. It would be, it's a humane thing to do. And I was, my thought was, ah, oh, you know, you guys are just talking. Go tell that story to somebody else. I'm not getting involved in sex. So, now, what does Medscape Family Medicine say? A scientific study shows men who ejaculate more have less prostate cancer risk. Yes. All you guys out there asking your doctor, oh, can I have sex? Is it okay for my health? I don't want to stress my heart, you know, maybe I shouldn't be having sex. According to this new study, you should be having sex. The more sex, the better. Or I guess more than what people are having. Now, it turns out that in, um, in Qigong, Qigong is actually not only a study of um, healing, or movement rather, but also a study of healing. So back in the 90s, I was reading all these books on healing. So I read this book, Living Qigong. And it turns out that the people who developed a system of living and healing determined that for men over 40, sex twice a week is necessary and important at a minimum of once a month. And if a man doesn't have sex at least, this is the bare minimum, once a month, it actually causes him to uh, have a shorter life expectancy and die. Now, what is the medical? Of course, that was just utter nonsense. I'll tell you, that's what it was considered back then. But let's see what the medical industrial complex has come up with on March 31st, 2016. This is breaking news, less than a month old. This is a study on ejaculation and prostate cancer risk which made a big splash at last year's annual meeting of the American Urological Association, was published online March 29th in European Urology. Publication provides greater detail on the main finding that men might be able to lower the risk for prostate cancer by ejaculating frequently. This large prospective study provides the strongest evidence to date of a beneficial role of ejaculation in prevention of prostate cancer. Right, so researchers. And I probably prevent a lot more than that, but we'll just talk about prostate cancer. However, <laughs> another expert threw cold water on any firm conclusion. So association does not mean causation. So one has to be cautious about interpretation, says Janet Stanford. And she's a PhD, MPH, not an MD, just by the way, in case that means anything. And she, of course, was not involved in the study. Now, the data come from 31,000 men in the Prospective Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, who were followed from 1992 to 2010. The average age of the men was 59 years old. During the 18-year follow-up, 3,800 men were diagnosed with prostate cancer, and 384 of those were lethal. So we have a lethality rate of less than 10%. So... Now, a lethality rate of 10% over 18 years, right? So take 18, multiply that by 0.8, and so we expect a lethality rate of 12%. And so if we have a lethality rate of 10%, this confirms what we know 
which is that prostate cancer is less deadly than uh, not having prostate cancer. All right, but be that as it may, in 1992, these men were asked to fill out a questionnaire to report their average monthly ejaculation frequency during three periods, age 20 to 29, 40 to 49, and the previous year. Okay. After potential confounders were controlled for a multivariate analysis, in other words, whether the guy was married or single, drank alcohol, smoked cigarettes, so they corrected for all these variables. The risk for prostate cancer was 20% lower in men who ejaculated at least 21 times a month. So 21 times a month, uh, that would be several times a week. Okay, so men who ejaculated four to seven times a month than in men who ejaculated four to seven times a month. For high-frequency ejaculators, this risk reduction was seen at all three time periods. And so I think when you have uh, this level of association and the sample size of 30,000 over a period of 18 years, while there may not be causality, the association is strong enough that it certainly would be um, recommended that guys increase their ejaculation frequency. It's true that risk reduction was more pronounced in high-frequency ejaculators than in low-frequency ejaculators. <laughs> Too few men reported zero to three ejaculations per month. So those reporting four to seven ejaculations per month served as a reference group. Okay, so the guys who were um, zero to three ejaculations per month were too embarrassed to report that. That's what I say. And so they had to use the four to seven ejaculations per month as their control. However, there's a significant relative risk reduction of 10% men who reported eight to 12 ejaculations per month, and 20% in men who reported 13 to 20 ejaculations per month. So in other words, there's a dose response curve. In other words, the more these guys have sex, uh, the less uh, problems they have in terms of at least um, prostate cancer. So safe sexual activity could be good for prostate health. Well, I don't know that they measured safe sexual activity. These guys may not have been engaged in safe sex. Maybe they're not using condoms. We don't know. They didn't ask. So one doctor said we shouldn't dwell on the exact numbers of ejaculations, but instead should focus on the dose-response relationship. Hmm. She summarized, safe sexual activity could be good for prostate health. Again, they didn't study safe sexual activity, they studied sexual activity. In fact, they didn't even study sexual activity, they studied ejaculations. We don't know how these guys ejaculated. Okay. There was no association between ejaculation frequency and advanced or lethal disease. The reason for this exception is not known. Well, I'll tell you why. Because prostate cancer is not a lethal disease. So, the fact that ejaculation influenced prostate cancer, which is a non-lethal condition, correlates very nicely with the fact that it doesn't affect other non-lethal diseases. So that's interesting to know. But again, the lethality rate 
for prostate cancer, which is 10% over 18-year period, um, is far less than the lethality uh, for all-cause death, just by the way. Okay. So portrait of high-frequency ejaculates. Who are these guys? They, are, they ate more calories than men who ejaculate less frequently. They drank more alcohol. They contracted more sexually transmitted diseases, like gonorrhea and syphilis, obviously, again, <laughs> this is not, there was not, uh, there's no evidence of safe sex going on here. And they were more likely to be smokers or ex-smokers, she reported. Interesting. They were also less likely to have undergone prostate PSA testing. All of these factors concern the researchers. They point out that these men had some exposure patterns that might put them at higher risk of death due to other causes. In other words, these factors concern the researchers because these guys who tended to have more ejaculations did not seem to be obedient to the standards put forth by the medical industrial complex. And so they're concerned that the reduction in prostate cancer risk might be attributable to premature death from other causes among men who may have had undiagnosed prostate cancer, they explain. So this, of course, makes absolutely no sense at all. So if they're going to have increased death, premature death from other causes, then why are we concerned about diagnosing your prostate cancer when these guys are obviously not at risk for death from prostate cancer? Using a model of semi-competing risks, the researchers found a reduction in prostate cancer risk in high-volume ejaculators seemingly cannot be explained by any premature death from other causes alone. So what they're saying is, maybe these guys didn't die from their prostate cancer because they died quicker from other causes. And so they said, no, no, we looked at the data and that's not, that's not what's going on. Now, if you look at this from a natural healing standpoint, each time a guy ejaculates, he's cleaning out his prostate gland. Yes, cleaning it out. And so obviously, the more he cleans out his prostate gland and detoxes it and gets rid of junk, then the less disease the prostate's going to be. That's it. Simple. But these doctors are still stumbling around trying to sort through this. So Dr. Stanford called the study data high quality and said she is excited about possible mechanisms of action to be investigated in the future. So she's happy to get more research grants. Okay. These interesting results should stimulate more research on how ejaculation may alter the prostate microenvironment, she noted. So, of course, I can tell you how. They're going to do a study, they're going to find a receptor, and they're going to tell you about this receptor, and how this receptor does this, and that does that, and that does that, 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 and then they're going to get a drug that affects that receptor, and everyone who should take it, take this drug, and don't ejaculate, and stop having sex. So, this is a little crystal ball, read the future thing. But the bottom line is, all these people, all these men, usually men, I guess, who said that they need to ejaculate, ejaculating more is a good idea, they were right. They were right. And safe sex? Obviously, these guys were not having safe sex because they had an increase in sexually transmitted diseases, but they still had better health. Ponder that one. That theory, okay. The idea, now, okay, so researchers speculate what could be at work mechanically and offer 
one explanation. One. The prostate might accumulate potentially carcinogenic secretions, we'll call them toxins, that can lead to prostate cancer. This idea, known as the prostate stagnation hypothesis, has been around for decades, Dr. Ryder reported, surely since before my birth. That theory might have parallels in folk wisdom. When these results were reported last year, a Medscape reader commented that the results made common sense and it urged his fellow male readers to keep the pipes clean, boys. Okay, so again, he spent all this money verifying folk wisdom, which of course had been rejected as nonsense decades before. So there you have it, guys. Ejaculate more. But... It doesn't stop there. Let's see, we have... Actually, that's it for the guys. So, another... Um, folktale is that vitamin D actually protects people against cancer. Can you believe that? Vitamin D protects people against cancer. All amazing. But here it is. High levels of vitamin D linked to lower cancer risk again. Again. So the median age of 2,304 women in the pooled cohort was 64 years. All were non-Hispanic white women with no known cancer at the time the study began. Okay. When in this cohort came from eastern Nebraska and were randomized to one of three groups, calcium, citrate, plus vitamin D, placebo, calcium plus vitamin D, or calcium placebo plus vitamin D placebo. So you've got calcium plus vitamin D, calcium alone, vitamin D alone, or nothing. Okay. The women were assessed every six months. When a diagnosis of cancer was reported, medical records were examined to confirm the diagnosis and ascertain the diagnosis date. Serum vitamin D concentrations were measured at baseline and each year thereafter. So, what did they find? Long story short, well, they found there's a 67% lower risk for cancer in women with vitamin D levels of greater than 40. Other studies have shown similar reductions for individual cancers. Now, this is really a travesty when you find that a level of 40 is associated with beneficial, with well, a 67% reduction in cancer because the normal range for vitamin D is between 20 and 50. So a lady can get her vitamin D levels checked and get a level of 25, and her doctor says, oh, everything's fine, when really she needs to be at 40 to realize the cancer benefit of 67% reduction in cancers. So after adjustment for age, overweight, smoking status, and calcium supplementation, the age-adjusted cancer incidence was 67% less. So that was, that was shocking. 
in one hospital-based case study control, women with serum concentrations above 60 had an 83% reduction in breast cancer risk compared with women with concentrations below 20. At 83%. And again, the normal range is from 20 to 50. So a lady with a level of 60 going to see a doctor adhering to the standard of care would be told, your level is 60, you need to cut back on your vitamin D supplements. So what this study suggests is no, a vitamin D level of 60 is even more helpful than a vitamin D level of 40. So in another study, women with vitamin D levels greater than 30 had a 63% lower risk of breast cancer than women with concentrations below 20. So again, what we're finding is as you go higher, 20 is the cutoff for normal, by the way. So if you go, as you go from 40, 30 to 40 to even 60, there's more and more benefit. And so there's no reason for a person to aim for a vitamin D level below 60. More recently, a case control study showed that women with vitamin D levels of at least 30 had a 55% lower risk of colorectal cancer. And again, it's a level 29, and the cancer reduction was 55%. And so this fits right in there that had that 29 enough to say 60, then the 55% risk reduction would have been even greater. So for people who were not satisfied with one clinical trial, we now have a second major cohort study with good results. So we had to publish it. Maybe some good souls who don't want to see so many women get breast cancer will take our findings to heart. To me, it's a scandal. Science has given us a way to protect women from breast cancer and nobody's doing anything about it. It's just a shame. He recommends that every female nine years and older take 4,000 IUs of vitamin D a day if you want to nip cancer in the bud. Now, vitamin D is incredibly cheap. We're looking here at basically five to $10 a month. This is, this is easy. It's a certain amount of cancer risk that is set in the first 15 years of life. 4,000 4, IUs is what they call the top tolerable level of intake. And they're not saying they recommend it. They're saying it's safe. The only recommended dose is 600 to age 70 and 800 to age 71. But they also say you can take 4,000 and you will be fine. So that is what we're basing our recommendations on. And so, of course, they cite pros and cons of the study. You always need pros and cons. You got to keep the confusion going. We make everything seem plausible. Now, what does this mean? This means that all these people, all those years, who were saying that maintaining a vitamin D level between 20 and 50 was not healthy, that you needed higher vitamin D levels. They were right. They were right. So medical industrial complex proves they were correct. So what's a person to do? Well, the thing you do is you've got to not allow the medical industrial complex standard of care to override how you feel. If you feel great, with a higher vitamin D level, then that's what you should have. And if the higher vitamin D level makes you feel not so great, then of course, cut back your vitamin D. And so they finally say, 
there's been much controversy about vitamin D, and the controversy has been in part because the limited number of controlled trials have not shown a reduction in cancer risk, whereas observational studies have reported inverse associations, most consistently for colorectal cancer. Trials have generally provided a low dose of vitamin D or had compliance issues, but ongoing trials designed to test these relations are using higher doses, she said. Okay, so this is the usual thing you do with, with natural therapies is um, they'll take a natural, ther natural therapy like vitamin D or vitamin C or even vitamin E and they'll either use a synthetic form or a minuscule low dose and say, oh, we looked and we just didn't find anything. And so now um, we have benchmarks here, which is blood levels, to show that in order to get the therapeutic benefit of vitamin D, you need a level of really about 60, number one. And number two is that there are benefits and literally 83% reduction in cancer. Now there's the truth about cancer is it's pretty easy and cheap to prevent. So the take home story is we have a volume of uh, knowledge here, call it folk medicine, that day by day is being shown to be more and more effective, even by the research of the medical industrial complex itself. Now, one last, uh, one last thing here. This is from the FDA itself. The FDA warns of heart failure risk with two diabetes drugs. Now, what's this got to do with natural anything? So when I was going to medical school, so here I was, I just graduated from Harvard, I got into medical school. And so of course the word was spreading, Jennifer got admitted to Harvard, you know. And so there were the people back in the neighborhood and the families and all kinds of people. So this one black guy came up to me and says, you know, you're going to medical school, you're going to learn to prescribe those drugs. Those drugs I use in medical school are a bit as bad as those street drugs. I'd rather use street drugs, at least they're fun. I said to myself, I thought to myself, oh my God, how terribly ignorant. Oh dear. Hmm. Well, the FDA shows he was right, I was wrong. Now, FDA warns of heart failure. Well, what causes heart failure? Heart failure is caused by alcohol. Heart failure is caused by um, contaminants used to cut uh, intravenous drugs like heroin. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, non-prescription uh, drugs, we'll call them, that cause heart failure. So now the FDA says they warn of heart failure risk with two diabetes drugs. You know, it almost doesn't even matter what they are because we know that diabetic therapy increases your risk of death by 30%. So that a particular drug or another use for diabetes is unhealthy, well, of course. Um, but just for your information, I'll read the names. It's on Glyza by AstraZeneca and Algogliptin by Nisina Takeda. So these are the two drugs. Actually, uh, yeah, Saxagliptin and Elogliptin. Those are two that cause congestive heart failure. And so this FDA warning validates really, the word in the street as early as uh, the 1970s, which is that those drugs the doctors prescribe are every bit as dangerous, even more so, 
than the street drugs. And of course, uh, the word in the street was, <laughs> might as well use the street drugs. But of course, there's another alternative. You could not use either. And so the one more point for the folk wisdom, folk healing, folk medicine, and another um, demerit for the medical industrial complex. And so, again, we have two bodies of knowledge. We have one body of knowledge, which is growing and growing and growing in scientific evidence supporting it, which is the folk medicine. And we have the other body of knowledge, which is the medical industrial complex, the chemical drug industry, and the standard of care, which is day by day uh, being exposed by research, their own research, to be deadlier and deadlier. What is a person to do? What is a person to do? Well, of course, do it yourself. Absolutely. Do it yourself. And um, how do you do that? Well, you can mostly head over to vitalitycapsules.com and definitely start by downloading uh, your free report, Remedies So Powerful They Could Make Antibiotics Obsolete. And that's vitalitycapsules.com forward slash remedies. Yeah. <laughs> remedies. Okay, so we have a few minutes left. It is time for question answer. Let me click over here and take a peek, see if we have any questions. Okay, we'll take a look at the um, chat room. Chat room has been very uh, active with this. <laughs> okay. So, Dr. Daniels, what do you think about condom use? Well, I think that uh, condom use, the best I can figure, is it does not appear to be um, on net a positive thing. Why is that? Because in this study, we can see these guys were ejaculating more. They were obviously not using condoms. They were getting sexually transmitted diseases, yet they were enjoying better health. So... Uh, the other issue, though, with, with condoms is now condoms are filled with all kinds of chemicals, uh, lubricant chemicals, um, and there's some uh, question as to the fact that these chemicals have on the long-term health of the male and the female who are exposed to them. So I think that it's, uh, it's really not a good idea. I think your best bet is uh, either A, take your chances, or B, um, the two of you get tested for diseases, um, clear those diseases, and then just make up your mind that you're going to be uh, faithful. Okay. So, what else did I say? Dr. <laughs> Daniels, do you think we need a vitamin D awareness campaign? Uh, I think we need a sunshine awareness campaign. That would be the start. I think uh, a lot of people have voluntarily put themselves in a hermetically sealed prison called a classroom, uh, K through 12, and then bachelor's, uh, master's, and PhD, and MD. Certainly, I was um, guilty of this, and I was so brainwashed about this. By the time I got to medical school, I was very proud 
that it made no difference to me if the sun shined or not, by golly, because I could work and do whatever I had to do under fluorescent lights without worry of whether it was day or night or raining or sunshine. Uh, then what happened was I moved to where I was a 15-minute walk away from medical school. So I had to walk 15 minutes, and that was at a fast clip. It was, there just was not any way of getting it down to less than 15 minutes. And so when I walked 15 minutes each way to school, I found that I actually felt better, and I enjoyed the sunshine. And then I realized that, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's uh, something to be said for uh, seeing the sun. And in medical school, you go into classes at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you don't get out until um, after dark, pretty much in the evening. And so I finally realized that that was not a reasonable thing to do. But I think the education level needs to take place with respect to the sun. And people need to realize that the sun is their friend. The sun produces all the food they eat. The sun produces all the oxygen that they breathe. And... Uh, they need to get a lot more of it. So let's see what else. Oh, let's click here. We have a question. Ah, oh, your question, please. Oh, hello, doctor. How are you today? Fine. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Excuse the noise. I'm in transit, and I have my headphones on. Um, this is probably totally from the subject, but I mm. just tuned in, mm -hmm. and I've, um, I heard a couple of podcasts, and I couldn't find the exact one, mm -hmm. so I was calling to find out, did you give information on where and who to order your uh, Shilajit from? Oh, uh, no, it's from Russia. You have to order it from the Russian Federation, and uh, I recommend eBay, because they have the highest quality and okay. the uh, lowest prices. But it does take one month to receive it. Okay. Now, I'm imagining dealing with eBay, there's many suppliers. Is there a certain one from Russia that you uh, recommend or no, um, look it into? No, no. It's called the Russian Federation. Oh, it is actually called that. Okay. Right. Russian Federation. Russian Federation. Okay. 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 Thank you so much. Okay. And uh, we appreciate the work you do. Thank okay, you. you're welcome. Okay. Okay. Let's go up and down here. Okay. So, Dr. Daniels, how can I shrink fibroids? That is a complex uh, topic, not exactly a one-liner. So the best way to get more information on that would be to go to vitalitycapsules.com and click the tab on the top that says uh, Discovery Session. But to shrink your fibroids, you need a total change of your diet and your mental attitude. Of course, you need a few supplements, but the biggest deal is, is your diet, your mental attitude, uh, and that's, that's big. Is female ejaculation a myth or is it real? Okay. So let's talk about what ejaculation is. Let's just put it in pretty plain language. So ejaculation is what we're talking about in terms of doctors, is this man ejecting semen from his penis. That's it. All the rest that goes with it is not what we're talking about. We're just talking about him ejecting this fluid, which may be anywhere from 1 cc to 15 cc's, depending. 
So what's the female equivalent? It's a period. So women have periods. And when they have a period, they eject blood and they eject quite a much larger volume of waste products. And this is why women live longer than men because their um, ejaculation or cleansing involves a much larger volume. <laughs> All right. All right, so this one person in the chat room says, Dr. Daniels, I'm a guy and I think 21 times a month is a lot. <laughs> well, I think each person has to find their own level, but the point is that there is a dose-benefit relationship, so the more you ejaculate, the more benefit there is. And obviously, zero times a month is not good. Okay. Okay, Dr. Daniels, doctors used to prescribe surrogate sex partners back in the 70s. Are you, do you know anything about this? Um, I went to medical school in 79, 79 to 83, and at that point, 90 seconds. surrogate sex partners were not prescribed. And so um, that's not something that um, I was exposed to or um, was aware of. Okay. <laughs> okay. This person says, I had a boyfriend who proposed this ejaculation theory, but I didn't listen because he was not a doctor. And yeah, the guy who proposed that to me was not a doctor. 60 seconds. I think along over the years, maybe a couple of doctors did propose it, but I still thought it was preposterous. Like, you know what? Maybe you need to ejaculate, but I don't think I'm the one to help you with that. Okay. All right. That is it. That is the end of our radio show today. And remember, think happens. Yes, sir, Bob. Think happens. So it is Tuesday, and we'll see you again on Sunday for more of the same. And thanks for listening. And check out your free report, Remedy So Powerful It Could Make Antibiotics Obsolete. That's vitalitycapsules.com forward slash remedies and we'll see you next week. 10 seconds